Amen. Uh, as many people do this time of year with resolutions and things of that nature, uh, I always like to reflect upon what has happened in the previous year, right? So I sit down and I go, okay, what has God done and where has he brought us and what can I see and where do I see God doing things? And each and every single time, at least for the past six years, but for the last probably 10 or 12 years, I've been so blown away at what God has done. And when I look out here, this is what I see. I realize Indeed, what God has done, and I can't actually quite fathom all that God has done. It's kind of um, unbelievable to me, even, even for me, and I, and I know I'm a little crazy. But as I'm doing that, then what, up, what generally happens in my mind is then I dream, right? I see what God is doing. It's unbelievableness of what God is doing. And then I dream. I dream of the amazing possibilities of what God says can be true. And then I dream that those things might become realities to further go into what God desires. Not what anyone else says, but what God says is possible. And then I spend time dreaming. I go, God, only if you would. If it's your will, do this and do this. Make this person and make this group and make our church do all these things for the greatness of his glory, right? That he'll pour into us, all that kind of stuff. And as I do so, as you may imagine, I'm blown away even more at the possibility, just the thought that God might do all these crazy things. And then, as I dream, it's almost like this weird, nauseating thing. I hear my own voice and then y'all's voice, this understanding of being present and attentive, Pastor Pete. So then I go right back to seeing what God is doing and then getting back into the moment of whatever God is doing. But for whatever reason, for the past six to eight months or so, I've been doing this sort of thing at almost a nauseating pace where it got me really kind of all messed up in very many places. I only do this every once in a while. I don't do it all the time. I dream all the time and I do this, but this process I, I, I do. But then there was something different about this process and it was reminding me as I got into the new year. Again, normally I think of what God has done and I dream, right? And then I hope, right? And then I live into the present. But what I couldn't do for the last six or eight months, all I could see was what I felt like God wanted us to be, the reality of what, and then I was attacking it. I was calculating, well, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, and we can do this. And I was like grabbing and like trying to like move everything over. And I completely lost my posture of saying, God, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. Help me to dream big because you want to do it, but let you do what you do. And then I got stuck in this pattern of where we are and then not being satisfied with where we are and then being like, oh, we got to get here. We got to do this. And then it made me really critical. It made me calculative. And I was like doing all of these things. Be like, oh, only if we do this, if I can get this person to do this, if I can get this ministry to do this, if I do this, and then maybe it'll work. And in and through this, I was struggling for this idea of greatness and success. I wanted it so bad. And I was like just churning on the inside, wanting it so bad and wanting to do all this. And then in the end, as you may have noticed, I made a mess of things at times. Thanks be to God that there's grace that's greater than what I can do. And then as we entered the month of Advent, things started to kind of change. God, clearly to me at least, presented a striking kind of dichotomy. If you don't want a dichotomy, it's a comparison between two things, like a black and white, one versus the other. And throughout the season of Advent, as we got into the new year, I started meeting with people and having these conversations, right? And then this really interesting thing, and I'm not bragging, I, I, I promise I'm not bragging. Then this interesting thing happened where everywhere I went, every time I tried to buy alcohol of any kind, I got carded. How old are you? I'm 35. Can I see your ID? Gladly. You don't look a day over, whatever. All the time. And then I started bragging because, you know, it kind of feels good, right? You know, you know, people think you're younger, right? At, I was at a college visit and they thought I was 20. And I was like, 
I'm like, you must be crazy. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that young, right? But this started happening a little bit, and then I would tell them, oh, no, I'm 35, I'm married, I got three kids, and then they're like, oh, what, 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 and then all this, right? Intermixed in all of these things, interestingly, many of you in here would look at me and go, Pastor Peter, are you okay? You look tired, or you look, something's not right with you. So it was this intermingling of like looking refreshed and young and kind of vibrant, and then also at the time looking tired and worn out and doing all these things. And then, as I was reading and as I was preparing for Advent and doing all these things, everything that I was reading pointed to these passages that we're going to look at today, the one, one main one, but passages like this where God calls us to be children. For the kingdom of heaven, that God's kingdom is for these little ones. And then we hit the new year, and then I kid you not, in the last, today's what, January 6th, in the last six days, I've had 15 conversations with different people where one half of them was like, dude, you are like, you're just glowing. You look so like, life is just everywhere. And then the other half literally was like, dude, your soul is tired. You look worn out. And they're like, I feel and I know I'm worn out. And then again, this dichotomy then started to form in this place. Where life, as you will see on the screen, life equals vibrancy, childlike freedom. And dying, is, it was exemplified by worn out, calculating, fearful people. And then in and through all these different things, all these kind of happenings, I was telling people, you look tired, you need to do what God tells you to do. That's the only way you're going to get life. And others, I'd be like, man, you are clearly doing what God is telling you to do. Like, that's amazing. Like, keep doing it and so on and so forth. And this dichotomy was everywhere. And then as I was thinking and as I was praying, and then we, uh, you know, a lot of things are happening, and uh, you'll find out a little bit more. But um, as, as things were happening, I felt God's cry to me saying, you need to look into what this means. You need to examine and dive deep into the things that will help us as individuals and us as a collective body as a ministry to live into what God has called us this year. And then it came to me, and then you'll see, you saw it on the screen, and the, and, the, and the phrases just like popped out into my mind. The thing I feel like we need this year more than anything is to learn what it means to be lowly great or learn the understanding of lowly greatness. And then next week, as we'll learn, helpless prayer. That if we as a group, as we as a church, we as RK are gonna go where we wanna go, do what God wants us to do, we will embody what it means to be lowly great and then helpless prayer. All centered around this metaphor that God, or Jesus uses in Matthew 18, turn and become like a child. Because if you don't, the kingdom does not belong to you. I think this is gonna be a theme for us. Because like, look, it seems we're on the, like the, like the, like the verge of greatness. Our ministry becoming things that we've dreamed about for many, many years. Not to talk about the retreat too much, we'll talk about it a little bit, but we had 50 college students go on the retreat, 46 of them from KCPC. That's a big deal. It's a point of bragging for Pastor Goose and I, if we're just being honest. My first retreat, we had 13 college students. Three of them were from our church. I had to beg anyone that had legs and a heart and a mouth that could talk that was willing to go, I basically took but for us to understand what this means, I feel like we need to dive into this understanding. Turn and become like a child. That greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by being low. And the way we're going to get there, it seems to me, is that we're going to embody this understanding of what it means to helplessly pray. And that's what we're going to look at next week. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. 
verses 1 through 14. We're going to read all of it because it's important, and it'll be on the screen, uh, as always. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up. I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, I can get you one. Try to get a real one. It's really good. Um, the, just the, it's, it's like just the feeling of like the pages flipping, that sound is really nice. So get one. But anyways, if you don't, it's on the page. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea." Ooh, I feel like I copied the ESV and reading the NASV. That's probably what I did. Like, I'm reading it. I'm like, this does not sound familiar to me. Anyway, sorry. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet that can be cast into the eternal flyer, fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has gone, if many man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains to go search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who have not gone astray. So it is the will, so it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the question that we want to ask today, that many of us want to ask in life in general, is how do you measure greatness? How do you measure human worth? And this is not a theoretical or some abstract question. It is an everyday, down-to-earth question that every single one of us, if we're being honest, both as individuals and as a culture, as societies, as companies, as whatever, schools and everything, deal with every single day. And if you don't think this is true, this popped up in in my news feed because I'm a sports fanatic. Uh, But LeBron James, in a little thing that he said, basically said, kind of, and it created news everywhere in the sports culture. It's kind of stupid, but just bear with me. He said, when he won the finals with the Cavs, when he beat the Warriors going down 3-1, he said, that makes me the greatest player ever. And then the whole internet, sports internet, blew up. How dare you? This idea of being the GOAT, the greatest of all time, is a thing that exists. Everyone wants to know who is the GOAT when it comes to anything or everything. Or if you don't think this applies to you, then you know this is true because if you've ever been to a house, you'll hear this all the time. Either you'll do it or I'll do it. If you come into my house and do it, I yell at you. But I've had many people come into my house and ask our kids, Kara, Mason, who's your favorite? Oma or Appa, mommy or daddy? And I go, don't do that. You're wanting to understand who in our minds is better, who in our minds is greater. You want to know greatness. Who's your favorite uncle, people will say. People come over to my house and they play with our kids and go, who's your favorite uncle? And then they know what the answer is. It wants to be me. I want to be the greatest. I want to be the best. I want to do this thing. In every sphere, wherever we are, anywhere we are living, we rank ourselves in accordance to greatness. You've been trained to do it. Some of you, this idea of rank is nauseating because in schools you are ranked by percentage points. 
difference between 7% and 8% means automatic entrance into UT versus not. Like, you understand this idea. And interestingly, the disciples, you would, who you would think maybe wouldn't do this, they understand it too. Because the background to this passage is in Mark 9, where the disciples are literally arguing and fighting, Mark says, over who is the greatest. And it makes sense. Because Jesus talks about life in terms of kingdom. And if you know anything about kingdoms, if you watch those like, you know, dramas or, you know, those shows about, you know, the kingdoms and how they work, there's a hierarchy in kingdoms. There's kings, there's queens, there's squires, or whatever. There's knights and there's whatever people. There's, there's ranking and then there's the lowest of the low. There's highs and then there's lows. It is indeed what it is. So the disciples, understanding that God's kingdom is a real thing, they ask, Jesus, who's going to get the honor? Jesus, who's going to get the decision? Who gets the special spot? They want to know who's the greatest. Even amongst the 12 of them, they want to know how they rank file from 1 to 12. And the reason they do so is because it's the same thing we do. They're worried. They're troubled. They're afraid about where they stand, where they rank, because it's important to them. And what we have in today's passage is the way Jesus responds, which in my opinion is the most upside down, radical and counterintuitive understanding of greatness the world has and will ever hear. And he says this, truly I say to you, click, unless you turn and become like children, you will never ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That word humbles, highlighted for you, literally means to lower or to take the lowest position. Which is to say, in God's kingdom, greatest is actually lowest. First, he says, you've heard this, is actually last. And, the, and to do so, Jesus says, what you must do is to turn. In, our, in the NASB, it's to convert. Literally means to change, to transform, to about face, to do a 180 degree turn. The only way you're going to do this is when you 180 degree about face, turn, change, transform, and become, be born again even, like children. Now, this doesn't mean that you should be like a child because, let's be honest, this doesn't mean that you should be a child but be like one because, let's be honest, I have kids. Y'all were kids. Not every kid and everything about them is great. Sometimes they suck a lot. Let's just be honest. But there's some things about children that we should emulate that will help us in the kingdom of God. So then we ask, in what ways? How do becoming like children show us what greatness is all about? And the thing Jesus wanted to point at, more than anything else, by the way, is centered around one thing, and it's status. Status. Be the status of children. Now, next week, we'll dive into certain childlike characteristics that will help us to understand greatness, and importantly, how it shapes us and how we should pray. But today, everything is about status and rank, because children especially in those days, and now too in some ways, but most likely in those days, don't have an understanding of status and or rank until we teach it to them. Have you noticed? Little kids don't know who's better or who's greater until we teach it to them, until we start racing with them and deciding who's faster, until we start asking them who's prettier and who looks prettier and this and this and this. It starts very young these days, but they don't conceptually understand in their own selves what is better or what is greater. They don't have dignity the way that we adults do. Because we, as you know, live in this place, as I've said, based on rank, status, the dignity associated with it, right? Like a dignified, mature people don't do certain things. Oh, that's not becoming of you, people will say. Like, come on, bro, like, grow up. But children don't do that. But also, unlike today, where we love children and we're obsessed with everything children do, like we celebrate when kids go poop. When they don't pee in their pants, like, big whoop, 
but we celebrate it. Woo! We're, we're potty training Kara this week. And every, every desire in our being wants to, like, give her a piece of candy for not peeing her bed. Like, come on, bro. Like, but the society back then didn't live that way. Children, unfortunately, had zero status and actually were seen as mere responsibilities, a burden until they could grow up and contribute to society and actually do something. And because of this, they were ignored, marginalized, largely added as worthless, adding no value to anything. And so Jesus says, you must turn and become like the status-less, the no-status, no-rank people like children. But also notice that Jesus says, not only should we become like the children, he says we must receive the children to receive him, right? So greatness, as Jesus is defining, it is turning, right, is tied to this idea of becoming like a child, but also receiving children, which means then the way I define true greatness is the willingness to take the lowest place and then be servant of all, especially the lowest of all. The definition will be on the screen. True greatness is the willingness to take the lowest place and then be servant of all, especially the lowest of all. What do you think about that? True greatness is the willingness to take the lowest place and be the servant to all. And then later, Jesus in the passage furthers it, and he says, notice he starts talking about children, and then he later he says, don't despise the little ones. They're not synonyms. Synonyms. Not synonyms. Synonyms. That's why. Synonyms. And little ones literally broadens the horizon to every single person that's powerless or poor or lacking status. Anyone who doesn't have prestige, who's the low, the powerless, the poor, the desolate, do not despise them, but rather receive them. True greatness, friends. Brothers and sisters, the willingness to become statusless and the lowly. To receive rather than to ignore the lowest of the low. Now, even as you're wrapping your mind around what this means, because it's very foreign to us, let's just be honest, right? What do you do in life where this is actually the axiom with which you live? Can you apply this where? In schools, in work, even in the church, right? I tell John all the time, just because you're the praise leader doesn't mean that you're good or you're great. Actually, you need to be the lowest. It's kind of this opposite idea. So how then? And why? Right? Many of you might be sitting here being like, okay, pastor, like it sounds cool. It's in the Bible. But literally, like, it literally sounds like the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> why would you want to be low? How is low being great? That doesn't actually help anyone. You don't want to be the 15th person on the bench. You want to be LeBron James. Like that does not, it doesn't calculate but I think the reason Jesus says this is because he knows that if you are able to understand this type of greatness, it changes everything about our relationship with others and relationship with ourselves that will then help you to live the life that you're meant to live. So let's look at that. Relationship with others and how it changes. A little known secret, or maybe that's not a known secret, but every culture has a problem. And the reason every culture has a problem, including ours and all the cultures come before it, is every culture is built like kingdoms. They're built with ranks. They're built with hierarchies. They're built with people at the top and people at the bottom. And every culture and every kingdom and every city and every country and every whatever nation people have always had one major problem as it pertains how things go. How do you get the high to coexist with the low? 
How do you get the rich, powerful people to not enslave and hate on the lowest people so much that in the end they get sick and tired of it, they band together and they revolt and they have a coup and then war breaks out, many people die and then all sorts of craziness happens, right? That's a major problem. How do you get the little low people to not be abused by the high people so they need everyone can coexist because every society needs high and low in the way that it's built. Every restaurant needs a head chef along with the line cooks. The only head chef doesn't make the restaurant go around. So how do you make people in this system coexist? How do you make it so that they don't take advantage of their power? And unfortunately, if you look at history, you understand that people in power don't ever do this well. They're abusive of their power. Everybody does it. Many of you as children, if you hate your parents, if you don't like your parents, you do so because you think they're abusing their power. They never apologize. They always are right. Yada, yada, so on and so forth. They don't have this balance, right? So then you have this thing. People who have great relationships at home, you feel like you're heard, your voice is listened to, that they don't use their power and their prestige and their age or whatever to tell you that you don't know nothing. That's the idea. That's the problem. But we have yet to learn, it seems, because people always abuse their power. History is full of revolts and revolutions. It's why they exist. The beat, the, because the low people are sick and tired of being beaten and beaten up and beaten down. And so they say, we're going to rise up. That's an anthem. Rise up and do this. Because they feel like they're being beaten down. And so how do you do this? Well, the sim- answer is simple. Answer is to indeed have the powerful people think that they are not more valuable because of what they have. But this is so difficult, isn't it? People with power, all of us think that we have it because we deserve it. Even in the pastor's ranks, you think this is not a problem, but we pastors here who have MDivs, who have master's degrees, look down upon the people who don't have master's degrees. Let's just be honest. Ooh. You're 25. You just graduated college. You can't be a pastor. You didn't learn theology, so on and so forth. In your academic school systems, you see it everywhere. It's what it's built upon. All of you are taught that if you go to a certain school, you can name them. I'm not even being mean. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Maybe throw Stanford in there then you're great. Everything is amazing. And if you don't, if you go to some community college, or if you go to whatever, it doesn't matter what, name the school, then all of a sudden you're not great. It's this idea that being smarter and better because you go to a better school means that you're more valuable, which means all of us in here live a life where academic achievement is the thing that tells us who we are and determines our value and our worth. It's funny Because certain schools, no matter what schools they are, you'll know this. If you know anything about it, right? If you don't, ask Lindsay. She's been to a lot of school, and she's going to be doing lots of school-related things for the rest of her life. Certain schools, no matter what, no matter what their national rankings, will have a better program than even the best ones in the country. It's just the way it works. But it doesn't matter. Even if you're going to a school where that program isn't very good, people will say, go there, because the name of the school matters. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Then, of course, what happens is the distance between the highs and the lows, they increase. And then our value systems are all jacked up. Which means that what we need in this kingdom, what we need in this church and all the churches in the world is a value system where the highs and the lows don't despise one another. That's why Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones in verse 10. But again, the question is how, right? You're probably like, how do we do this? Some of you probably are like, how do I teach my parents this? Get them off my back. And the key is very simple. 
but very hard at the same time. The key is to understand that every good and perfect gift is indeed that from God. Isn't this what the gospel teaches? Everything you have, every good thing you have is a gift from the Lord. Without his death and his resurrection, none of what you have is actually possible. Your power, your rank, your status, your talents, all of it did not earn you this. God's gift was given to you, and all we did and all we must do is receive and to follow. As a pastor, one of our biggest issues is that we think we earn this place, this pedestal. If you know from the very beginning, I used to preach from the floor. You know why? It's because I never wanted to, like, I, can't, I can only think in Korean words, chakak, you know, like, what is, the, what is the word English? Never wanted to fool myself into thinking that I was greater by standing above y'all and looking down. I wanted to be on eye level. And I'm 6'2", so I'm a little taller anyway, so, like, I wanted to be eye level. And then someone told me, Pastor, that's your, that's your place. You got to take your stand. I was like, okay. And now we have these ridiculous subs, so if I did that, I just might be like, I feel like my back and my butt would get blown off or something. But it's this idea my status, if I have any, is not earned. It is a gift. It is all received. See, if we get this idea, in my opinion, we will not, or better, we cannot think of others as lesser. We cannot think of others as less valuable. Ask the people with lots of money in the world. They're the ones who have the hardest time understanding this concept because they think their money makes them something. Do you know who I am? Do you know how much money I make? Do you know what I do for a living? But when we understand that all of it is a gift from God, we will never and we cannot take lesser of, the, we cannot take more of the lesser, but we will rather lower ourselves, take the lowest and welcome, receive love and take and embrace, even the little ones and even like the children. And the issue is real sneaky and you think it's not. But the issue that we have is this thing that I call that we have the issue of being a screener. Now, I'm not, I'm not referring to the idea that our lives are full of screens. But it's the idea that whoever we are, we screen things. We screen everything. Isn't it true? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. The moment you walk in here, the first thing you do, whoever you are, and everyone has a different thing that they do. But the first thing you do is you screen people based on who they are. Oh, he's tall. He's short. Ooh, she pretty. She not. Ooh, he's smart, he not. Whatever the case might be. Ooh, that's a good outfit. That's a raunchy outfit. Whatever it is that you do, you rank people based on what they do. Good versus bad. Pretty versus ugly. Impressive versus lackluster. Helpful versus annoying. And then what it does in the end is get us to this place where the thing that you're looking for is one thing and one thing only. Does this person help me or do they drain me? Because if they help me, come. Let's go. If you drain me, get away. I ain't got time for you today. And so we screen constantly. And depending on how you screen, then you choose to engage or you choose to ignore, right? I, I, I ain't got time for you today. I cannot, I, cannot, I cannot handle you today. But as you know, this is not the way it is with Jesus, is it? Because the greatest is the lowest. And when you're the lowest, being the greatest, you receive all. Children, little ones, the one who take your value, the one who drain you, the one who needs your help. And if you look at children, they're the best at this. If you've been to my house lately, we've become a refugee camp. 
There's even a group chat, group chat called The Refugees. Three boys who will, rename, who, will name, uh, who will remain nameless live at my house, and they've been living, at, living there for the last two weeks. No lie. Upstairs, my wife is freaking out because it smells like dudes. It smells like a dorm room. It's gross. I can't even find my remotes because it's everywhere. The sleeping bags, laptops, whatever. It's all there. But if you ask anyone, anyone who's been at my house, they know they're loved by our children because my children will play with anyone who's willing. No matter who you are, your status, where you go to school, what you study, what your GPA is, if you will play with them, they will play with you. If you will receive them, they will receive you. If you love them, they will love you. Actually, they will ask for you to love them, and then when you say no, they will keep on coming and say love me. That's just the way it works. This is what children do. And when you do this, it transforms everything about your relationship with others. And it transforms everything about who you are. Come to my house and we'll sit all at a dinner. It was ridiculous. It's like our family of six, right? Me, myself, and my three, uh, three children, and my mother-in-law, that's six. And then my sister-in-law was, I mean, my sister was in town, that's seven. And then these three refugee boys and then whoever their friends are, right? And then we got one that's kind of like a homeless refugee. He comes, he has a home, but he comes anyway. And there's other people. So there's like 11 people all sitting around. And as they're doing it, they'll tell my children, eat well. Sit properly. And then my children will go, nah, and they'll listen. It is the way it transforms these things. Love happens in a way, all spurred by these little three rascals that run around and create mess everywhere because they know what it means to be low, and they're okay with that. That's why I love it. Kara always goes, I told her this morning, baby girl, you're growing up so fast. She's potty training, and she's doing really well. It's kind of, I don't know, this weird thing. I want her to be in diapers still, but I don't. You know what I mean? Like, stay baby forever. And then she goes, Appa, I'm your baby forever. It's not an all thing in the moment, but she understands what it means to be my baby girl, and she's okay with it. So then when this happens, then everything about your relationship with yourself changes. Did you notice in the, in the text about the, past, the part about gouging out your eyes and cutting your hand off? Everyone wonders, like, what in the world is this? Like, why do people, like, why is this? And the reason is simple. The reason Jesus mentions this, in my opinion, is because Jesus teaching us, he's teaching us repentance. What he's saying is very simple. If you notice anything that is moving you away from God and from his will, you ruthlessly admit it and you get rid of it. Don't just look at it, ignore it, hope it goes away, and pretend that it isn't bad. You get rid of it. If an eye is causing you to sin, you gouge that thing out and you walk with only one eye because it's better than that to then enter into hell. If one hand is caught you, you cut it off and it's better to enter without any hands than it is to enter the fiery hell. This is humility. This is lowering. This is greatness, Jesus says. Which means then, a truly great person goes from a screener to a repenter. They are not defensive. They do not deny and they're open about their faults and their wrongs. It's why we love expressions so much at retreats, for those of you who've been, because you see their true greatness. It's people willingly lowering their status, lowering their image, embracing their hurt. That's true greatness. When someone's able to stand before a crowd and say, I have suicidal issues, I have depressional issues, my parents fight, do all these things, that's them lowering themselves and saying, I'm okay with the fact that you know how messy I am because I trust that God loves me and I trust that y'all love me. It changes everything everything in that moment. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's greatness. If you know that passage where Peter denies Jesus and then he's on the beach, everyone know that passage, right? 
And he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Everyone knows the story. Peter denies Jesus at the time of Jesus' greatest need, right? He's about to be crucified, and Peter goes, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. Get the F away from me. I don't know that guy. And then Jesus drags him through the fire, right? The little detail that I told you about, if you've been here, right? At the passage when Peter's denying him, he's, he's lighting his hands. He's warming himself over a charcoal fire. And when he gets to the beast, guess what's there? A charcoal fire. Only two times in the entire New Testament that word is mentioned. It's purposeful. And then he asks him, do you love me? Three times, the same three times that Peter denied him. The entire point is this. Jesus saying, I think this, your failure was the worst, and I will not let you forget it because forgetting it does not work. Rather, Peter, I have an idea that's going to revolutionize your life. Throw your greatest failures into my great and unending grace. That's how you will be great. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, because you are the greatest failure, you can be the biggest leader. Because nothing prepares you for greatness. Nothing allows you to speak into the lives of other people other than to plunge your failures, your greatest failure, into his grace. The, great, the way to greatness is simple. It's repentance. The ease with which we can admit that we are wrong and repent. When you can't, you have issues. It's not a coincidence that the word repent was understood as literally turning around. Turn and become like a child. And if you do, you will not see what you are, which is your failures and your fears, but you will see what Jesus sees, what he is for all of us through repentance and the ease with which you admit that you are wrong. That is greatness. Now the last question, Pastor Pete, how do we do this? Two ways. First, I've already said it, you lower, you turn, you change, and you become like that of a child. You lower your status, you take on the lowest status, you embrace what it means to be, as we've looked at, poor in spirit. Now, I'm going to clarify things better for you that I hope maybe you can understand, because I think this is the way we do it. We talk about poor in spirit all the time. We talk about being low all the time, and it makes sense, but I think this is the way we do it. Because if we're honest, everyone in here, most of us are Christians, most of us understand what poverty in spirit kind of means intellectually, conceptually, we understand it. But I think this is how we approach it, right? Because poor in spirit means spiritually bankrupt. It's coming to Jesus empty-handed with nothing to bargain with, nothing to barter with, nothing to earn. But most of us, let's be honest, this is how we do it. We go to Jesus and we say, because all of you are learned and all of you have learned, listened, and I know that you pay attention to all these things. You go to Jesus and you go, Jesus, I know I'm not perfect. Like, I'm not perfect. I mean, let's be real. Like, who's kidding themselves? I'm not perfect, but... I'm not helpless either. Like, I'm poor, but I'm not bankrupt. Like, I messed up, but I ain't messed up like you know who. I'm not completely empty. I at least got a little bit in the spiritual bank. Remember that time I did this, God? Remember the time I went on missions and I did this, God? Remember the time I gave this to you, God? Remember that I did this? I have a little something. I'm not saying I'm perfect. No, 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 God. I'm not saying I'm perfect. No, no, no. Don't get it twisted, but I'm not completely broke. I may need a loan, for those of you who know what money looks like, but I can pay it off. Just give me some time. But see, this is not Lowness. This is not greatness. This is not poverty in spirit. He's saying, no, turn and become like a child. Take the lowest. Be saved by my sheer grace, he says. 
This is how you lower. Not to talk about retreat all the time, but we always do at this time of the year. But I try. Every single time someone shares something really, really hard, something really, really hurtful, I always try to walk up to them and see how they're doing. And for the ones who just pour everything out, and then this is why we started doing this, but whenever I ask for prayer, people, they flood the front, they lay hands, and we pray and all these things. And afterwards, right, when I walk up to them and I look at them and I go, man, are you kidding me? And they'll say, I haven't felt this free or alive in a long time, Pastor Pete. It's like they're soaring, freed of the burdens that they've been living with, allowed to be low, and allowing God's grace to lift them up high. All of it is them embracing the gospel. And over the years, I've heard even some mention, you know what? I love expressions and all, but sometimes I feel like I can't share anything good. Like it's all meant to be really ha- you know, sad and cry and everyone's got an emo- you know, emotional cry and all these other things. And I go, mm, I'm not entirely sure. Because the beauty of Jesus' greatness is the lowering and becoming like that of children, relying and throwing ourselves on his sheer grace. This is greatness. And when you embody this, you can share joys and triumphs along with sadness and hurts and pains. Because all of God's grace, all of his gospel indeed envelops us and it lifts us to a place. So we turn and we become like children. Can we do that, church? The oldest in here, let me talk to you for a second. Can we do that and embrace these little ones in here? I want this church, because I think it's the embodiment of the gospel, to stop saying things like, I don't want to worship with junior high kids because they don't add any value to our worship. And then I watch them in places dance and jump and joy and do little things, and I go, oh, the older people, they can't do that because they don't have the freedom. They lack it. But young people in here, can I turn to you? Don't act like you're so young. Don't treat yourself like you're so young. Know that you're valued in this kingdom. Know that you're valued in this ministry, that you have something to add to this. Turn and continue to be like that you are a children. Don't ever get so high upon yourself. Turn and become like a child. Repent low and be great. Be the church that God has called us to be. Low, turn, repent. And the second thing then is to take, is to receive, is to see the true great, the truly the greatest in the kingdom. You know the answers to this. Who became the lowest? Jesus. Notice how the metaphor in the passage changes from children to little ones, and then he throws in the prodigal sheep kind of thing, the, the sheep. If you notice, the progression is lowering in status from children to little ones, and then even lower the sheep. Now you wonder, why is he doing that? Right? Why is he doing that? Because although our God is indeed the God that goes after the lost sheep, it's why we're not singing reckless love after this. If you're hoping that's what we're singing, we're not. Not only does he go after the lost sheep, he becomes the lost sheep. And unlike The story that Jesus tells, unlike Luke 15, no one finds and no one rescues this lost sheep. On the cross, Jesus, the lost sheep, is forsaken without any rescue. Jesus, who is the highest, becomes the absolute lowest so that we, who should have been the lowest, can be saved 
by God. And when you see Jesus doing this for you and you receive this God and what he's done for you, it changes everything about who you are. You then freely, gladly take the lowest and you turn to embrace anyone and everyone completely differently. I've seen this in here. The more we embody the gospel, the more we embrace Jesus, I see people walking up to random people they don't know and going, hi, nice to meet you. I've never seen you. Hello, my name is so-and-so. Welcome to RK. We throw these things to the side and we go after those people as Jesus has done for us. Next week, we'll look at the childlike things that help us to change the way that we pray. Which is indeed the way that we turn. But I wanted to end with one last childlike quantity, quality sorry, that helps us to do everything that we've talked about today. And their one thing that they're doing so well, I already mentioned, is their ability to receive love. I love this about children. I don't know. Because it's not, none of us in here like this. We're too old. We're too, again, mature for this. Children, if you know them, are completely expectant of love. They expect, for whatever the reason, even if they got a poopy diaper and they stink or they just, you know, farted and they just, they expect you to love them. Sorry for telling nasty jokes about my kids all the time, but they're my kids. It's the only thing I know. Connor, he farts all the time, and they stink. Even if he farts in your face, he expects you to play with him and love them. It's just utterly ridiculous. And they'll be like, bro, you just farted on me. And he's like, so? Literally. He has no concept that that's, like, not a thing that should be loved. He's expectant for you to love him. They assume that you will love him. They assume that myself and my wife, Christina, will love them. And the saddest thing in the world, and you know this, is when a child starts to question that their parents love them, no? It breaks your heart. When they don't have the freedom to run to their parents and go, love me, dad, love me, mom, and these things, right? And as a parent, there's indeed two ways to continue to preserve this confidence, this expectancy that they have, right? Some people call it innocence, which I don't think it is true. And the two ways you continue to get your kids to do this is one, to shower them with love. No matter what, just keep showering them, right? No discipline, just overwhelm them with your love. But unfortunately with this idea, though it may help them receive your love, they can never receive anyone else's love. And they can never lower themselves because they don't know what it's like to be low. They think they actually deserve. And the older they get, they deserve everything they've gotten. And when you think you deserve that you need love or that you deserve love, it's different from assuming that people love you. Because deserving love means that you are the reason, the things that you do are the actual reasons for the love, whereas expecting the love, it just means that the person who's loving you is going to love you because that's just who they are. Again, I talk about the refugee boys. They love our kids. And my kids expect to be loved by them because the refugee boys are great. They play with them all day. See, when you think you deserve love and you think you have this power status because you are, then you are incapable of loving others the way they need to. You may receive the love because we're selfish, but you're never able to truly give it, especially to those that are low because they don't deserve it from you. But then the way that I think that we then preserve this ability to expect love and assume love by the giver of it is that we have to show them their poverty and their lowness and yet always maximize our love for them. We talk about this all the time. But when you know that you've messed up, 
and you realize how big and apparent your mess-ups are, you realize how sinful you are, how undeserving you are, and yet your parent or someone comes lower than even your greatest mess-ups, and they love you, it changes you. Does it not? It utterly transforms you. And unlike us, who in those situations will feel things like, oh, I'm not deserving of this love. Actually, you know what? This is just fake. This is actually just a mirage. They won't actually love me after this. It's only because I did this. And we try to justify it in our minds, so then we hide it. We conceal it. We try to suppress it. We run from it. Children, true children, they run and embrace and throw themselves upon that love no matter what because you do. I'll tell you one story as we finish. I invite the praise team up. And this is what I'm asking you to do today and the rest of this year. One time, if you know, I have strict eating rules inside my house. And Mason was being a punk. He wasn't eating. He was being picky. He was doing all sorts of random things. And I told him many times, all throughout, like, the course of three, four days, every single mealtime, Mason eat, Mason eat, Mason eat, Mason eat. He was three. No, four, sorry. He was about four. Four or five. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And so after a little while, I just got so fed up. Because eating for us in our house is a way of loving people, showing appreciation to people who cook for you. It's a missional attitude. That's why if you've gone on missions with me, I say missions rules, you eat everything. Why? Because when you go on missions and then people cook for you and you don't eat it, that's not being loving of them, right? That's the idea. And so we try to teach this to our kids. And so, we're doing, and so he was not doing it. So I got so fed up and I said, Mason, go. I know, it might be mean. I might get phone calls after this. You do what to your children? I sent them to the laundry room and he sat there for two hours. And then as he was sitting there, I kept kidding him, Mason, if you want to come back in. And he said, no, I don't want to eat. I said, okay, you stand there. And then as I was happening, I started to see and sense a situation where I could indeed teach him grace, teach him love, teach him this idea. So then though he thought he was going to be in there for a while, I walked in. I said, Mason, you can go. He goes, what? I was like, you can go. And he was like, I was like, go. So he got up and he left. And then he started showering and doing his bedtime routine. And then I sat in the laundry room. And he was getting ready. He was showering and doing all these things. And then I overheard the conversation because his room was right next to the laundry room. I could overhear it. And then Mason goes, where's Appa? Where's Daddy? And my wife said, he's in the laundry room. And he goes, why? And he goes, because though you deserve to be in the laundry room because of your actions, your daddy didn't want you to sleep in the laundry room, so he's sleeping there tonight. He goes, what? He even came in to check up on me because he thought I was, we were lying. And I was there, laying. I was bored out of my mind. I didn't even take my phone because that's the rule. We, our phones are away when we eat. I was just sitting there. And he goes, why are you sitting in here? And I go, because when we don't live right, someone needs to pay. There's consequences for everything that we do in life. But you can live as long as someone takes the payment and I'm going to take the payment for you because I love you. Because I don't love you because you're great. I love you because I'm your father. And apparently he went and he cried with his mom because he didn't know what to make of it. He's like, why is he in there? I should be in there. I don't know what to do. I don't know. And my wife said, just take it. This is your father's love for you. My whole idea was to teach him that even when you mess up, even though you're not great, and we're not going to be great very much all the time in our lives, the grace of God says we're loved and we're beloved. And when you're able to admit that you're wrong and receive it, that's when you become truly great because then you can go. And then literally months after, there was a kid in his class who was throwing chairs and he hit the teacher with one. 
And he came home and he's like, so-and-so is doing this, so-and-so is doing this, and he's creating a ruckus. And then we said, Mason, what should we do? And he said, and this is what he said, I almost lost it. And he goes, we should pray for him because he lacks love. Because he doesn't have anyone that will love him when he's being terrible, I think. And so we need to love him and we need to pray for him. So we pray for him every day. And by the end of the year, he got better. And Mason would come home and say, oh, so-and-so's doing so great in class. Greatness, friends, is that to become like a child, to be able to repent, turn about face, lower yourself so you can receive and love and also receive the love of the greatest who became the lowest. And if we do that, I promise, this ministry, this church, will transform this city because no one will have seen anything like it. So as the praise team gets ready, as we finish in response, I have a challenge for you. What's keeping you from receiving the love of God, his sheer grace? What are your biggest failures that you're holding on that you think you need to get rid of? And can you in this moment, if you know the grace of God, can you throw that upon his grace and say, God, I give it all to you. I want to become great by lowering. And the second challenge then is this. For those of you who do so, then I want you to think and ask yourself, who do I need to, lo- who, who do I need to love by lowering myself? How can I take the lowest so that indeed this person can be loved by the sheer grace of God that I have received? And when you think of that person, you pray and you ask God for the strength and the grace to lower so that indeed you can love in the way that you're meant to. And if we do, RK fam, we will know what it means to be lowly great and we will love it. And we will learn, as we will learn next week, to pray helplessly and see God change things. So will you join me? It's 2019, it's a new year. Can we learn to become that which is lowly great and see God do things we've never seen? So take a moment. Reflect, pray, think. Throw yourself upon his grace. Be quick to admit and ruthlessly get rid of your hurts, your pains, everything that keeps you or is turning you from God's will. And then as you do so and you receive that love, then take time to think about someone that you know needs that grace and ask him for the strength to lower. Take a minute, however many minutes, and then John will lead us.